everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Female Film Critics panel. And this is a very special episode. Everybody knows how much I love Tick, Tick, Boom, my favorite movie of 2021. And as I was talking about it on Twitter, I noticed that a bunch of my girlfriends that have come on this show or on my other podcast also really love the movie. So I thought, let's just do a whole fun episode where we just talk about Tick, Tick, Boom, the whole episode. (laughs) And so everybody else was super excited to do it as well. So very fun. So I'm very excited about this panel that we have today. Starting out, we have Nicole Ackman is here. Hi, everyone. And then Lauren Knight is here. Hello. (laughs) And Rachel McMillan is here. Hello. Yes. Um, So I want to give you each a chance to introduce yourself and just to tell us, you know, a little bit why you love Tick, Tick, Boom. And then we'll dive into the nitty gritty and uh, talk about some of our favorite parts. Um, So why don't you start, uh, Nicole, and then Lauren, and then Rachel. Okay. So I'm Nicole. Um, I am a film critic who writes for a bunch of different outlets, but actually first and foremost, I'm a theater critic. I started out my journey as a critic writing for Broadway World, uh, both in the US and in the UK. So it makes a lot of sense that I would be as obsessed with Tick, Tick, Boom as I am. I'm a huge theater fan, a super theater nerd, and I had a very intense Hamilton phase back whenever it first came out and have, you know, been really following Lynn's work. And I was so excited to see Limo Miranda's uh, directorial debut and so excited for what that would look like, because I think that there's a lot of themes that he speaks to Uh, a lot better than most people working today. And I think one of those is sort of the uh, urge to create and the urge to do something and find your path, uh, which definitely is something that this film speaks to. But I actually wasn't super familiar with the musical itself, even though I was, you know, knew Jonathan Larson's other work and knew Jonathan Larson's story. So I was really excited to get to experience this. And it's, uh, it's kind of funny. One of my friends went to an early screening of it. And after that was immediately like, you have to see this as soon as possible. You're going to love it. I think it's going to be in your top three of the year. And I was like, ah, that's lofty praise. Like, I don't know, but it is my second favorite movie of the year. Uh, and I am absolutely in love with it. I listen to the soundtrack from it on Spotify, like continually. Uh, I think my sister is like begging me to listen to something else at this point. Um, what would be number I, one? My number one movie of the year is Mass. Um, And I'll say this Mass and Come On, Come On are like very close together. Like you really could put them in any order. I just had to like pick an order. Um, But I've I've watched Tick, Tick, Boom more than any other film from 2021. Uh, I've watched it quite a few times, more than I'm even willing to log on Letterboxd at this point. (laughs) Um, I'm like, people don't need to know. Yeah. (laughs) This one and the Mitchells versus the Machines is the movie that I watched the most in uh, in um, 2021, just because I kept showing it to people. I watched it yeah. with my nieces and I watched it with, but, uh, and also it came out in the beginning of the year and this didn't come out until the end of the year. But, um, but yeah, so Lauren, what about you? I am a film programmer for um, a small locally owned and operated theater chain here in Phoenix, Arizona called Majestic Theaters. Um, so watching movies is literally part of my job, but I'm also so busy that I have no time to watch a lot of movies. (laughs) I am also a musical theater nerd. I did, uh, I started doing theater in middle school. Um, I started out dancing when I was three and I did tap belly and jazz for a number of years. So musical theater just seemed like the national, the natural transition to, 
uh, an only child with a lot of energy and <laughs> like, look at me, uh, you know, personality. So I started doing like theater camps in middle school. And then in high school, there was finally a drama club. So I joined that and I became a thespian and got to go to thespian conference. Um, I went to New York a lot uh, in my 20s. I had a lot more disposable income when I was oddly single as opposed to married and would go to New York um, and see like Sutton Foster. I saw her in like Thoroughly Modern Millie and I flew up to see her in Anything Goes and I saw Alan Rickman in Seminar, Rest in Peace. And like, I, I would just go, I saw, you know, Catch Me If You Can. So I would just go to New York like once a year and just see like Broadway shows, stay with my friend in Queens, walk to the subway and then just see Broadway shows for like three days and then fly home. Um, so I was, I'm admittedly very, I'm a film musical snob to a degree because I, having like trained in dance and then I took voice lessons for like eight years or so, including like classically trained first before progressing to like Broadway vocals. I very much judge Hollywood musicals. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm the same way. So I understand. <laughs> so I was almost kind of dreading Tick, Tick, Boom. I was familiar with this, with the cast recording because I went through a rent phase as every like you know, <laughs> high school, like junior, senior, college freshman, like does. So then I was listening to Tick, Tick, Boom. I was familiar with most of the songs, but I didn't know. I've never actually seen it performed. So I didn't know how all the songs like fit narratively or how the story was told, but I had no idea. Like I knew, you know, Tom Holland can dance. We all see the like Rihanna umbrella video. So like, and he was Billy Elliot. So like, that makes sense. But I had no idea and was very skeptical of Andrew Garfield's singing talent. Cause we, I feel like there's not been anything to indicate that he can do I think that. it was his first so time ever singing. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> I was very anything. nervous. <laughs> uh, he can't, and I'm a huge, like, I'm a huge Andrew Garfield fan, but I was of course very skeptical, uh, going in, but, um, oh my gosh, I don't know if it's, it's probably my favorite movie of the year. People ask me for my like top 10 lists and I'm like, I don't know, but I always mention tick, tick, boom to them. So it's pro that probably means that's my number one. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about you, Rachel? Well, I'm kind of the odd person out because I'm not a film person per se. I enjoy film. Um, I'm actually a historical novelist who lives in Toronto. Um, I have a, a new release coming out with HarperCollins in March. And I, I am a theater buff, though, just out of my passion for it. So I have seen Tick, Tick, Boom on stage, listened to the cast recording a ton, um, but... Uh, really don't have the same eye for film that you guys do. What really was amazing is I live in Toronto and we are in rotating lockdowns. So Tick, Tick, Boom was the first film I had seen in the theater in two years. And I saw it at the TIFF Bell Lightbox, which in normal times is where all the TIFF films play. Um, and I went and it was amazing to be out there. But what really struck me was not actually... I went because of my theater passion. It was that Lin-Manuel Miranda was able to take something that works better in film, I find, than ever did in the stage show because he was able to make it into a cinematic biography. But it's also, and this is why I've been able to drum up enthusiasm, the most prescient, most amazing look at what it is to be a writer I have ever, ever, ever seen on film or television. So that is why I was so impressed by uh, 
the movie because it's it's really what a writer's life is and that's what makes the movie so amazing is because it has this tertiary um it's an art film it is something that appeals to theater buffs but for writers this is what it is to be a writer whether you write novels or a musical theater i i really loved it for that yeah, so I am admittedly, I'm kind of the reverse of you, Lauren. I am a musical apologist. I <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough to make a musical that I don't enjoy. I mean, they, they managed to with Diana the musical. That was so bad. I Even I could. I enjoyed that, but not for the reasons they wanted me to. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad. But you know, if I say musical is bad, it's really bad. Like I am very forgiving, uh, when it comes to music and, uh, you know, I don't know, even something like Mamma Mia that a lot of people hated. I, I had a, I had a great time. I, uh, I just really enjoy it. And when I, um, well, really the first movie or mu piece of media that I ever really connected with was, uh, the little mermaid when I was a little girl and just singing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And, um, and then when I was in high school, I became super obsessed with Les Miserables and mm -hmm. I, that was right fairly soon after the 10th anniversary concert had come out and, oh yeah, you got it on there. Well, um, yeah. And I knew literally every word to every song. And, and then I finally went and saw it, uh, my freshman year of high school, we got a choice between going to see cats and going to see Les Mis. <laughs> um, and I've even an apologist for cats. That's how bad I am. I am, I am not to be trusted when it comes to musicals. I just have fun with them. Wait, I just enjoy movie it. cats. Movie yeah, cats? movie cats. Musical or oh, the I movie? love the movie. I love <laughs> yeah. the movie, but probably also to Nicole's yeah. point, not for the reasons, but like no, Skimbleshanks. <laughs> it was just so Skimbleshanks weird, and I was like, get it. Yeah. Sometimes things need to be bonkers, and it yeah. was bonkers. It was right. It was just start to finish, like non-stop like it was just all 11 it was all crazy I love I love cat I'll defend that one <laughs> yes um but anyway and so this year 2021 was like amazing to me I mean it it was like every week there was a new animated film and a new musical <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was coming out and I, whether it was like schmigadoon uh, on you know a series that was so fun or like your animated musicals with vivo and and canto and um there was uh you know movies like um everybody's talking about jamie which was so fun and um i know there was just so many and so i almost kind of lost tick tick boom in the shuffle of everything and, and then Netflix was like super crazy about, um, I mean, I guess now it seems to make sense, but it didn't at the time, uh, that we had to, um, uh, we had to have negative tests, uh, and our vaccine cards and all this hoops. And then we, I, I finally got to see tick, tick, boom. And it was just me and my friend Patrick in the theater. That was it <laughs> after all of that work. Um, Anyway, and uh, I was just blown away. I thought it was so good. I loved the whole message of 
being a creator matters and don't give up no matter if everybody thinks you're crazy, if you, if it doesn't work. And, you know, I, I just related to that so much because even though what I do is podcasts, it is sometimes feeling like you're just pushing an elephant up a hill. Like it's not working, you know, and, and, uh, and then you'll have just these moments of connection or, or doing fun things like this or whatever, that's like, okay, this works. And, uh, there's, there's value in what I'm doing. And so I just related to his journey so much in that way of like the frustration of creation, but also like how you just got to keep, you can't give up. And, uh, so that was why I love the movie so much. It was, it was my favorite of the, of 2021. And, uh, I, I've just, it's the movie I've just been telling everybody, gotta see it, gotta see it. You gotta see it. It's so good. Uh, but <clears throat> You know, one of the things I think that really helps the movie is that, uh, that you feel so immersed in this experience because of the, uh, home, home movies that they, that they show throughout the film. And it just looks, if you look at the actual films from Jonathan, it looks identical. He looks exactly the same. I mean, everything down to the way the bookshelves were to the, um, to the posters, to everything. I mean, they just really get you in that spot in New York in the nineties. You're there. Uh, I don't know. How'd you feel about that, Nicole? Yeah, I thought that was absolutely incredible. And I know that, uh, Lynn worked some with Jonathan Larson's father who actually just passed away. I think this past week, uh, to sort of help get as much footage and photos and everything of Jonathan and the place that he lived that they could, so that they could like perfectly recreate these things. But I think the way that Andrew Garfield was able to sort of recreate, not just the fact that they made him like look like Jonathan Larson with that hair and the clothes and everything, but he was able to capture that sort of almost manic energy that Jonathan Larson seems to have had in like all the videos that we have of him. And I think it's just insane how he was able to embody Jonathan Larson in that way without it ever feeling like an imitation. It always felt like, you know, whenever you have these sort of more biopic type things, uh, I always think about, is this performance an imitation or an interpretation of this person as a character? And I think he definitely kept into that thing where it never felt like a cheap imitation of it, but he somehow captured Jonathan Larson. Yeah. And so, and Rachel, you saw, you saw Tick, Tick, Boom on the stage then, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. So I know they cut out a couple songs and things, they moved things around, but do you feel like it, this, the way that they kind of combine a biopic and, and Tick, Tick, Boom together that, you know, that, that worked for you as far as the show? Oh, absolutely. Because you get more of the, and this is my favorite scene is the swimming scene, because that's mm-hmm. exactly what my brain works as. Like you just start, that's how ideas come that whole per- and the what I call the procrastinate cleaning scene where you're on deadline and you have six hours and you are cleaning your apartment because that's what you do um so I thought that it worked better because you get that deep consciousness and on the stage you've it is very much like at least the production I saw those spliced in moments of the stage where they are performing that kind of overt monologue of Larson's when he's singing about it, you get to visualize it. 
and it gives us another layer of the texture of what it was like to be in Jonathan's brain because you're seeing everything that goes around it. So it's almost like it is like that in his anxious brain where he's always running out of time. He's always thinking about different things. He's always explaining how creativity comes, but with the film, you're able to actually visualize that. So it makes it far more accessible. Um, and I, I honestly really think that the only person who could have done this was Lin-Manuel Miranda, because he understands it in a way that no other director possibly could. All the dumb jobs you have to work in order to pay the bills to justify your passion all of the spending eight years on something knowing that it could be gone in a second that's something that the film allows you to get that the stage show does not so there's a disconnect with the stage show because anybody can get up there and sing well as Jonathan Larson or Jonathan without a surname as it is in the musical but Lin-Manuel very interestingly combined the autobiographical aspects that we see in the apartment that we see with uh his friends that we see with you know the the aids pandemic right that was i i'm bad well on my, that was the know. other reason yeah. why it really connected with me because we are in this era of pandemic yes. and they were in an era of pandemic and so there was that kind of under underlying you know thing as well that sort of fear the frustration that's that that I thought really made it easy to connect with the story, uh, but <clears throat> uh, it starts out with thirty ninety and the whole thing of becoming thirty, and uh, I liked when he said, "At a certain age, you stop being a writer who waits tables and you become a waiter with a hobby." And I don't know, Lauren, what do you think about that introductory song and that that? <laughs> Uh, so that was a song that I, I have not listened to the cast recording since I was in my twenties mm -hmm. and I am now closer to 40 than I am 30, unfortunately. So that song happened and I found it extremely relatable. Uh, but also almost, I found it relatable, but at the same time, I feel like my life really started to click and connect when I was 30 though. So like I didn't even get this job until I was about 30. So it's, I, I don't know. I, I definitely feel like, like, what am I doing? Where am I going kind of thing? And then I hit 30 though. And it all just kind of like all of that life experience and then, you know, career experience just sort of like led me down to, you know, a successful career in the industry that I actually wanted you know, uh, it led to like success in love. I'm married now. I got married around 30 also. So it just like, it's highly relatable for creative yeah. people, but also, I don't know if it's almost different for me in a way. Cause I really felt like, like, yes, I don't like being in my thirties. I wish I could be like 28, 26 forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then just like, um, like tuck everlasting, like just stay. And then just, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> No, I agree but, with you. Yeah. I had the same experience. I just turned, uh, well, I'm about to turn 41 last year, turned 40. And I found that my 30th birthday was way harder than my 40th birthday because by the time I, when I was turning 30, I just felt like I had nothing like, and, and I totally relate to, to Jonathan in this way that like I had, I felt like I had nothing, to, no accomplishments, you know? I was, uh, I had just gotten out of a job that I absolutely hated. I was miserable, um, kind of repairing that. And, um, 
I just finished up school, uh, my getting my grad degree and I don't know. So I had a few things, but, but it was a tough birthday. <laughs> I remember. And, uh, whereas like now I have my podcast, I'm on Rotten Tomatoes, like I'm a f- actual film critic and, uh, and <clears throat> I, uh, I have a home that I purchased, you know? So there's like, I felt like at 40, I had some things to show for my life Whereas at 30, I didn't feel like I did. And I, I think that that's definitely something you connect with, uh, with Jonathan on. And we don't mean to scare you, Nicole, because you're the young end of the group. <laughs> no, it is so funny because I feel like every person that I know who's like, I have several friends who are turning 30 this year and I'm 27 and we're all feeling that, but like, wait a second, what do I have to show? And I also think there's something to be said for the fact that like, our parents' generation, I think turning 30 meant something different for them than it does for people yeah. nowadays in that I have a lot of friends who are 30 and they're single and don't own a house and don't really know what they're doing in their career. And that's okay. Uh, but I am, I'm 27. I'm back in grad school for the second time, trying to pivot my career away from something that wasn't making me happy. I'm living with my little sister again. Uh, I'm single as can be. And it's kind of like, oh God, I have three years until I turn 30. And yet everyone I talk to who's in their thirties is like, oh no, everything starts to like fall into place when you're in your thirties. Like you stop caring about everything as much. So I think it is that funny, like experience. And I think it is heightened as a creative person. And I think part of that is because so many creative people, I think that we have throughout history, uh, had like tragically short lives. Um, you know, I, I, I had like a weird breakdown, uh, last year, whenever I realized that I was older than John Keats ever was. Um, and it is, yeah. And it's that weird thing. If you think about these people, like, I mean, Jonathan Larson died at a very young age. Uh, and I think that that does sort of like create this almost myth that you have to be, you have to get your creative success when you're young, because so many of these people did. And it's like, okay, well, for one thing, uh, we have better mortality rates now than they did throughout uh, most of history. So, you know, even, even whenever Jonathan Larson was alive, um, we, we have better ways to, you know, but I think that is an undercurrent theme to the movie too, though, is that, uh, you write like you're running out of time because he was running out of time. Oh God, that whole, that whole section where he's talking about like, you know, uh, that he feels like he's running out of time and it's that horrible irony of sitting there as an audience member knowing that he is and he's saying it more like oh I think I'm running out of time to have my success as an artist and whatever but you know that he's literally running out of time because he doesn't have that many more years left that he's you know until his death yeah. and I wonder if um because Lin-Manuel is clearly obsessed with people who have this portentous feeling of their own mortality. Um, I read an article with him where he said that when he was a kid, he was also obsessed with the idea of his own mortality. Clearly, the running out of time thing is a major motif in Hamilton. Like, major! It overtakes half of that show, that Hamilton, on some level, must have been aware that he, he was writing constantly three times more than any of the other people because he knew in some level that this might be it. And in the same way, Jonathan Larson might have had this kind of sixth sense that there's only so much time I have. How do I justify every moment? And to live with that manic, frantic anxiety that you're not doing enough, like that's crazy. And I think that crazy, I don't mean in a pejorative way. Crazy isn't like, whoa, it's amazing. Um, 
And I think on some level, Lin-Manuel Miranda, with the sheer volume of his output, has the same mentality that he has to make every moment count. I mean, look at the just his output this year in Kanto, Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, In the Heights. He's never, and saving bookstores, he's, yeah, he's never not doing something, right? It's, It's very interesting to me that these creators have almost this little trigger in their head that's like, okay, I, I've really got to get my life in order, at least creatively, and do what I can to justify the fact that I feel that I only have this short space. I, so think, I certainly know, earlier, relate to that, for sure. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. I think earlier, Rachel, you mentioned that, like, it is interesting to watch this movie because it's set during the, you know, AIDS uh, epidemic. And Obviously, there's a lot of differences between AIDS and and COVID, but I do think that both of them have created this atmosphere, particularly for creative people, where you're so aware of mortality because you're constantly seeing news stories and you're, you know, seeing friends and family who are dying or hospitalized. And I think that that does sort of make that clock ticking a little louder than it would be in a more normal time where you weren't so aware of of life and death. We all we all went in knowing what happened to Jonathan Larson, but I have a lot of like quite a few film critic friends, mostly male, but you know, not exclusively, but who had no idea who he was. So they went into this movie at maybe at best he maybe knew like about rent. But I don't even know if this one friend even like made the connection of like he wrote rent, you know, like that. T- anyway, he went in to Tick Tick Boom and he was so sad when it was over because he had no idea that Jonathan died so young. And I can't imagine it like it was heartbreaking watching it, knowing like with all these things mentioned about time, like knowing that like ha- he wasn't going to make it. But I was curious as to how they were going to end it. Like, were they going to end with him like dying on screen? You know, I didn't know how they were going to end it, but my friend went in like not knowing who Jonathan Larson was. So I can't even imagine also like how he felt at the end, like a different type of heartbreak. (laughs) Yeah. So that was an interesting perspective. I think it did introduce a lot of people to Jonathan. They didn't know. Absolutely. I also think like on sort of the similar topic, I, like I said, I've watched this film many times. I had such a different experience the first time I watched it after Sondheim's death. Uh, at that voicemail scene, mm. I literally just sat and sobbed for like the next 15 minutes because I think on one hand, like it's so beautiful that one of, you know, that he got to be involved with this right before he died. Uh, this piece that really, I think, celebrates the way in which Sondheim lifted up younger artists and continually gave back to the community and encouraged other people to create and the ways in which he shaped musical theater, you know, to think that without Stephen Sondheim, we might not have rent um, if, if he hadn't encouraged Jonathan in those sort of formative years. But also just, you know, to hear his voice like that, knowing that he's no longer around because I, I was one of those people, I kind of felt like Stephen Sondheim was immortal and he was always gonna be there. So it truly rocked my world. And to have Betty White also die not long after, I'm like, nothing is sacred anymore. Um, yeah. I watched but- Tick, Tick, Boom the day Sondheim died. I hadn't had a chance to watch it. And so I finally had the time and I sat down and I had like my food, like I was, it was like me time. And Stephen Sondheim had died earlier that day. And I had no idea about the Sondheim Larson connection. So it was just like kismet and like a coincidence, but I was like 
it was like double emotions because I had no idea. And then the actual voicemail, right? Like seeing an actor portray Sondheim is like one thing, right? Yeah. But then having the voicemail actually be Sondheim and not Whitford, like just kind of was really right. trippy. It was yeah. so intimate. I loved it. And mm-hmm. it's almost like he got a jump start on his legacy by virtue of Tick, Tick, Boom and West Side Story coming out and him being able to see West Side Story at Lincoln Center, be able to be involved in Tick, Tick, Boom. So he was able to close the last chapter of his life in a really poignant way, which I, I love. I mean, if you're going to go, go like Stephen Sondheim. If you can't <laughs> have him forever, I, I really, really loved that he impressed. Uh, and by virtue of the fact that we wouldn't have Hamilton without Rent. So it really, just by Lin-Manuel Miranda's involvement, we're seeing the chain continue. He's another link in the chain that wouldn't have existed. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and I I know some people said <clears throat> that, uh, you know, Jonathan's kind of an unlikable character in the film. But for me, at least, I appreciated the fact that he was a flawed character, that he, a person, human, uh, that... Uh, I I think that anybody that is trying to create something like it's frustrating because it, it is so, it requires so much of you, but like you get those rushes. So you, so you kind of, you, you love that it requires so much of you. Um, And, and I, I think you see that with him and, and I don't know, I just feel like it makes him a more interesting human if he's flawed and, you know, gets uh, maybe doesn't treat people all the way that he should but he learns and he grows and he's a dynamic character i i think that's more interesting than someone who's perfect and treats everybody perfectly i also think with the fact that you know tick tick boom is sort of this semi-autobiographical musical if jonathan the character was this perfect guy who had no flaws i think it would make jonathan larson seem you know like a jerk like oh so you're gonna portray yourself as perfect right whereas by portraying himself as this deeply flawed person who is having these struggles I think there's a level of self-awareness there that I find really admirable that he's able to admit these things about himself uh even though he's writing it like at a time where he's it's not like he's looking back on his life 20 years later he's writing it at a time that's like still fairly recent that all of this you know this early struggle would have been happening uh so I think that that makes me admire that so much more that he's able to have that level of awareness of of who he is and of the difficulties that you know his creative genius has sort of put on the people around him yeah I didn't find him unlikable I found him very living in that sphere and having like filmmaker friends and like things like that like very relatable even me I have a terrible work-life balance like me too and we don't, we don't have children. So that kind of enables me almost to like not have a work-life balance. Cause I have no reason to like stop working for the day, but my brain is constantly working. I'm not always present. Like when I'm with my husband, I'm just like, not necessarily like paying attention to him. And I mean, I was in a relationship with uh, a guy for a long time who was uh, trying to get his film career up and running as like a, like production assistant and stuff like that, like in Atlanta. And I was constantly second fiddle. Like I was, con- he was constantly working 12, 16 hour days, didn't necessarily have time for me. And like, I would get mad because I didn't understand it. I was still like in college or whatever, but like, that's when you want something so badly, but then you're also afraid that you're never going to achieve it. So then all of this time and effort and relationships you've sacrificed, like end up not like could potentially not have been worth it. Like you end up like also projecting onto other people too, you know, like I thought it was 
really real. Yeah. Um, yeah. The love story is definitely, and that's why I, I show it. Like I always tell my family and friends, if you want to understand what it's like to live in my head, you have to watch this movie. And it's that scene where he is with um, his girlfriend and the whole thing around uh, the fact that he's hugging her, but playing music on her back. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's saying, what happens after the workshop? There's always another workshop. There's always another deadline. The, it elevates the support system he did have with his friends and his family, but it also shows that some people were not meant to have a traditional conventional life because the true love story is that he at the piano at the end, uh, when he is just visited and learned about Michael's AIDS, he decides that this is how he is going to spend his time. That's his turning point. He's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so that's the true love of his life. And it means everything else will always be, as you said, second fiddle. It's never going to be somebody or a relationship. He makes that choice for himself that it's always going to come first. And I thought that that was a really amazing thing to see because he's a layered person, but he's also somebody who reflects so many of us who end up giving up everything to do this because there's always a workshop. There's always a deadline. There's always another opportunity. It's so good. I think it's, it's so nice to also see sort of portrayed that he has this romantic relationship that he's trying to deal with, but also we see that the person that he's more able to prioritize is his best friend, Michael. And I think we see that that's because Michael is maybe the one person who truly understands what Jonathan's gift is and how he is having to make these sacrifices. And I think it's, you know, the fact that Michael also is willing to honor that and willing to take the step back when he needs it, but also remind Jonathan that, you know, there are other things out there as well, I think is so important. I think it's so important that artists have that person who's able to sort of get through to them, uh, that I think that it's really beautiful that it sort of honors that as well. And the way that they sort of parallel all of this with Jonathan and Michael having this conversation about Sunday in the Park with George uh, and the relationship in that between George and Dot, I think is so so smart, beautiful. And it's, it's one of the most genius things I think I've ever seen in a movie to sort of make that parallel there well and I love I love that whole song when he has the flashbacks to his childhood with Michael and doing West Side Story together and yeah then he says I'm gonna spend my time this way and uh, and that's just you just cry because it's so beautiful I mean there's just so few films like that are truly about friendship and uh, I think this is one that that is whether it's the friendships uh, where we, we of course get the camaraderie between uh, everybody at the diner. Um, we should talk a little bit about the Sunday scene, um, which is one of the highlights of the film. Uh, and you know that it was definitely Lin-Manuel like getting out his Rolodex, like <laughs> calling the favors. And uh, I just, as a as a musical nerd i just love that that was so fun scene you have howard mcgillen chuck cooper lin-manuel miranda joel gray andre de shields who's in hadestown brian stokes mitchell felipe sue renee elise goldsberry felicia rashad beth malone b bb newerth 
Cheetah Rivera, Bernadette Peters, Adam Pascal, who was in Rent, and Daphne Rubin Vega, who was also in Rent, and Wilson Germain Heredia, who was also in Rent. And so that was just so much fun. And I think you needed that scene to just kind of breathe for a second with the film because it was getting pretty heavy. And then you have just kind of a fun, a fun scene. I also think it really shows that like as much as Lynn is making his foray into film and he's, you know, has like all these films coming out this year and everything, he is still a man of the theater community. And I really admire the way that like he has ensured that with every employment opportunity he has gotten, he has sort of brought his people with him. Uh, and I, I think often if any of you have seen his episode on drunk history, there's a part where he gets uh, rather drunk and he FaceTimes Chris Jackson and he starts telling him, as long as I have a job, you have a job. As long as I have a job, you have a job. And to see the fact that Chris Jackson um, did the singing voice for a character in Moana, had a cameo in In the Heights, has a cameo in Tick, Tick, Boom, I think is so beautiful to see that like Lynn honoring his friendships and honoring these people that he's worked with in the past. And I mean, Robin de Jesus, like one of his early roles was in, in the Heights on Broadway and to see him then brought into this film and sort of helping him also make the transition to film. I think it's just really beautiful to see Lynn continuing to sort of pay it forward in a way and, and ensure that every good opportunity that he gets is an opportunity that he's also sort of passing on to other people in the theater community. And I yeah. actually have a different, I love Sunday because as I said, I'm a writer who loves theater and I've loved theater forever. Um, but that was a scene that was really melancholy for me because so many of us to make ends meet have to work these day jobs, have to work these different jobs to justify our craft because not everybody makes millions of dollars writing or producing or what have you. And that scene just shows Brian Stoke Mitchell's character says, this is why you're just a waiter. And we see how Jonathan to survive working this job that is so below him escapes into his mind. And we see that genius working that even when he is working his diner job, he's automatically turning the wheels. And I love, I think it was a last minute thing because someone has to back out, but I actually love that Lin-Manuel Miranda, the cameo he chose for himself was the waiter in the kitchen. He could have been anybody. I mean, his father's the, one of the workers at the apartment <laughs> that Michael moves into. Lin-Manuel Miranda chose possibly one of the most humble cameos you could have working this busy diner. I just, that scene is so amazing because it's an honor to Sondheim. It's an honor to Jonathan's amazing recreation of that song. It's brilliantly framed by the fact that they're watching Sunday and putting it into some kind of context, but it also shows what it's like, you know, in the end, when he's singing at, in Central Park, five o'clock diner calls, he has to go. He has a time limit on his creativity before he has to project the other Jonathan Larson and serve people I just oh I love it yeah I love everything about this movie <laughs> well I and was... also you have the contrast between Michael and Jonathan where Michael has chosen to enjoy his life what mm -hmm. the time he has left and and he's not gonna you know uh he's not gonna fight it out I guess <laughs> um and how once Jonathan realizes that Michael has a has HIV 
um, how that kind of changes his view. He was kind of judgy of Michael. And uh, I don't know, I just think that contrast between the two of them is also very interesting. And Michael says, it would be a tragedy to give up what you have. There's only one Jonathan Larson. And uh, then he says, I think I'm, I might know a thing about running out of time. I, uh, I've talked a bit before about the fact that I think there's some really interesting parallels between this film and Little Women. Um, and you sort of have the same thing here with the contrast between Joe and Amy, where they're both people who are creatives and yet Amy recognizes that she's never going to be a great artist. And so she takes a step back and gives it up. Yeah, and that's what that's we see point. Michael doing as well, that he says, you know, I'm just another actor. And he recognizes that he's never going to be the best. So he's able to step back from it. Whereas then, you, you know, you sort of have your Joe March or Jonathan Larson, who has like a true gift and a true calling. And I think that's something that's very interesting because I think that a lot of people sort of spend their twenties trying to figure out if, you know, being a creative is something that they like to do, or if it's something that they feel truly called to that they truly can't live without. Uh, and I think that, you know, having to make that choice of, is this my calling or is this a hobby is something that a lot of people struggle with. And I, I really like sort of the tension because I think it does exist. And I've seen it in my own friend groups of, you know, creative people, the tension between the people who've taken a step back and accepted that it's not going to be their profession. Uh, and the people who are sort of still fighting it out in the trenches, so to speak. I think that that definitely exists. And I think it's it's portrayed here really beautifully in a way that sort of honors both choices. And the yeah. grace to accept that somebody might be more talented than you are. The fact that Michael is so supportive, knowing that this is not his role. I, I do feel that that I, I said, I haven't seen a lot of films in the past year, but it's a, it's a bit of a shame that he's not getting more best supporting actor recognition in award season. He was fantastic. I nominated him for everything I could. <laughs> same, same. Um, I, I do think that Vanessa Hudgens, we haven't talked about her, but she slays it with Come to Your Senses. It is really great, I think. I also think her in that therapy scene, I think the therapy scene oh is my one of my gosh. favorites of this entire year. Oh, that was so good. Oh my God. Her and Andrew together in that scene are insane. Like the work they're doing there, the way I didn't know that she could do that. Like I, I've never really thought of Vanessa Hudgens as like a supremely talented actress, like nothing against her, but I've always thought of her as like, yeah, she's pretty good. Um, and then I saw that scene and I was like, I think I've been underestimating Vanessa Hudgens. It's so unabashedly theatrical that I love when he just goes all out theater. It's still a I film, think, but I love that. I think that might be why Vanessa works because I'm with you, Nicole. I don't think she's a particular, like, I don't think she's a particularly like great actress, but I think if you put her in something where she gets to be a little bit like more theater, right? It, it works. Cause her character was also very much like, very like, late 80s early 90s with like those knee-high boots and like the hair like she she was dressed like drama right so I think I think it's the singing where she excels but then I mean I I don't think I'm a very great actress but I think I'm a very good singer and so I always prefer musicals and always audition for musicals over like drama plays because I'm not confident in my acting abilities and I emote and act better when I'm singing. I feel more when I'm singing. So I think, 
I, I understand that. And I relate to Michael because like, you know, whatever I do music, you know, I did musical theater up until I got this job, like out here, like community theater, but it was always musicals, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a great actress, you know, um, I can get roles, but that's not where I feel like my talent lies. And that's also not where I meant to be. I'm not good enough to make a career out of it anyway. You know, for me, it's a hobby. Um, so yeah, so that was really both, both of them were very good and very relatable. Yeah. I think that she's good at bringing the humor into a scene. Uh, I think she's an underrated comedic actress in a lot of ways. I mean, even in the, the, uh, princess movies on Netflix, just <laughs> whatever. Um, she, she does a good job. I, I especially love the, uh, the, the Cruella de Vil-ish one of the triplets. I think it's <laughs> just hilarious. But I think she does a good job with that. But I, I definitely connect with what you're saying because um, there are definitely moments as a podcaster, you just like you put something out there, you work really hard on it and just nothing, it doesn't go anywhere. And then, um, and then you'll have a moment where you really connect with somebody and, uh, and then you think, okay, I, I, I can, I, I might actually be good at this. Might, this might actually be something I, I could do. And I think that's what you connect with, with Jonathan in the, in, um, in the movie, especially, you know, at the end when he's playing on the piano and just thinking about his friendships and his life and, and, uh, you know, louder than words. So great, great moment. So that's the end is louder than words. And yeah, I just think it was a really beautiful film, beautiful tribute to Jonathan Larson and just a, a, uh, a film made for the the creatives of the world to not give up and uh um that i said in my review i said it's the the glory of not of never giving up is is what uh, i felt from it so thank you to all four of you for talking about this uh this was really fun for me and um why don't you each uh when you start rachel and then you can head off uh to tell us where people can find you um, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, my handle is always at Rach Kamick, R-A-C-H-K-M-C. So follow me. I talk about Tick, Tick, Boom a lot with lots of gifts. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. And uh, Nicole? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, at Nicole Ackman 16. I've got a link tree in all of those places, which has links to like where I do all of my writing and podcasting for different outlets. I also lately have just started openly thirst tweeting about Andrew Garfield. So if that's something that you want to see every time he mentions his secret social media accounts, I cringe in fear, um, then definitely come, come hang out with me on Twitter. And, and Lauren? Uh, hi, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at that movie is fine. Uh, it's also, it's been quite the year for Andrew Garfield's tear ducts. I watched Eyes of Tammy Faye and Tick, Tick, Boom. And then of course the new Spider-Man movie. And, uh, I just want to give him a hug. Like I'm like <laughs> severely attracted to Andrew Garfield's crying face. And I don't know. But yeah. anyway, that's probably too much information, but I'm like, <laughs> let me fix you. Uh, yeah. I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, you. You can find me at Rachel's Reviews, all over social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on Rotten Tomatoes and at the Hallmarkies podcast. You can check it out, all the good stuff we're doing over there. And let us know what you think. What are your favorite parts of Tick, Tick, Boom? Did you love it as much as we did? Love to hear your thoughts in the comments section or on Twitter. 
And uh, if you are listening to this episode on iTunes, please leave your ratings and reviews. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like this video, please subscribe to the channel. I would really appreciate it. And, uh, and check out the patron group and merch store. That would be awesome. And thanks so much, ladies. This was really fun. I know we could have gone on forever, but, uh, <laughs> but it oh, was really was great. Fun. Thank so, you for having, having me. me. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Bye.